Have you ever wondered how a kangaroo can live in a tree? Or what about crocodiles and how they can stay underwater for hours at a time and not be seen? Maybe what keeps you up at night is your thoughts of how box jellyfish can be the most venomous animal in the whole world towards humans? Or is it your curiosity of what really goes on inside that caterpillar cocoon for a magnificent stunning butterfly to emerge? Well, don't worry, as I have all your questions answered and much, much more with our following Wild Chats, I am going to bring you the most amazing guests. Hey everyone, my name is Jodie Creek and I'm a wildlife educator and huge advocate for Australian animals. And of course, their habitats and ecosystems as well. But what I'm truly passionate about is bringing you information that you need to connect with the natural world. So someone once said to me that I may not be able to change the world but I can change the world around me. So let's hope that we can inspire you to make change at home and therefore together we do actually change the world. So get that cup of tea ready and enjoy the following Wild Chats. So Neil, how are you going? Good, thanks Trudy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited that I could track you down. Um, I've been I've been watching all your amazing work on Instagram and so for everyone listening, we have Tanil Hawk here who is an ecologist and um, you're, well, you've got a lot to kind of share. So you're a part of the Platypus Conservation Initiative. Now, is that is that your is that your initiative? Did you start that? Um, no, it's an initiative that we started from the Centre for Ecosystem Science at UNSW. Um, okay. It was originally started by Professor Richard Kingsford and Gillard Bino, who were my PhD supervisors. Um, and that was established in 2016 and we kind of got the ball rolling with field work and then I started my PhD in 2017. So been working with them ever since. Nice, nice. What did you do your PhD in? Uh, platypus, so <laughs> obviously. Um, specifically I was kind of looking at historic declines and trying to quantify oh. like how, how those um, changes have occurred kind of over the last 200 years. Um, and then the field aspect was looking specifically at the impact of dams on platypuses. Ooh, yes, yes. The impact of dams on lots of yes. things, really, isn't yes, it? Yes, definitely. So, so what, what, did, what did you find? Tell us a little bit about some of your findings. In terms of dams, um, we had this design where we did like um, paired rivers. So we would have one river that was impacted by a large dam and then we would have like an adjacent free-flowing river um, that, you know, the flows weren't interrupted at all so platypuses could go upstream and downstream. And we wanted to see if um, things like abundances and health uh, and movement were different upstream and downstream of these large dams so that we could say, you know, whether they're having an impact on the populations. Um, So we did like three areas, so up in the northern rivers of New South Wales um, and then around the Snowy Mountains in southern New South Wales, and then we also did in the um, Victorian Highlands as well. Um, I guess the main findings were that it depends on the dam and how the dam is managed. Mm. So, in, for example, in the northern rivers, um, we didn't find a huge impact of the dam up there, and it was actually the same in the Snowy Mountains region where the rivers that they've um, got these dams on, they've actually done quite a lot of, um, like, restoration efforts um, downstream of the dam and they've also tried to mitigate things like cold water pollution and now the flow regime is kind of mimicking the natural flow regime they're not impacting the seasonality or the timing of flows so we kind of found that um, all those measures have been really beneficial to the downstream platypuses Mm. however in victoria um specifically on the um, midamita river downstream of dartmouth dam we found that the population there was really significantly impacted by that dam and we assume that's because like the level, um, like the severity of the regulation there is far more severe. So, you know, they're doing these high summer flows, which is um, not the typical season there where you'd expect these flows. And there's also a lot of cold water pollution from the dam there. So we really think that that was impacting those platypuses. Yeah, right. What do you mean by cold water pollution? So when you have like a large dam or reservoir, if the water is incredibly deep and it's sitting there for a long time, the water at the bottom doesn't get any sunlight, so it becomes incredibly cold. When they pump from some dams, they pump the water from the bottom of the dam, meaning that you're getting all that cold water 
downstream. Um, but a lot of the dams now they're putting in these mitigation um, strategies where they take the water from the top, so they reduce that cold water impact downstream. And the cold water is like a real problem for things like the macroinvertebrates, so the little bugs that live in these rivers because they're really dependent on temperature and fish are also really dependent on it for their spawning as well, so it really impacts the stream. Mm, wow, I didn't. I was unaware of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually really interesting. So in regards to the other part of your PhD with the historic um, decline, I mean, I guess it's it's a given that there's been a decline. Am I am I correct? It's, I guess, a given. Um, it's yeah. a problem with the platypus is it's incredibly hard to prove that. Um, so in terms of like undertaking platypus research, it's quite difficult and it's very like expensive and time consuming just to catch one individual. So in that respect, there's not a huge amount of long term studies for platypus. So we don't really have any long-term evidence to say that they are declining. Um, so what we did in this particular account looking at the historic declines was using like um, observations that people have uploaded to databases like the Atlas of oh. Living Australia and kind of plotting how those observations have changed over time. And we also went back and we went through about 12,000 historical newspaper articles. Um, wow. Yeah, so they've been digitised online now, so that made that a little <laughs> bit easier, thankfully. But then just trying to look um, at some of the information that they were providing about, like, the abundances of platypus way back in the 1900s. And, you know, a lot of them were suggesting that you could see 20 platypus at a time or <laughs> platypus were captured. And, uh, of course, platypus um, used to be shot for their fur, so a lot of them were talking you know, like numbers in the thousands of platypus being harvested for their furs. So it kind of wow. paints that overall picture that we really, like we don't see platypus in numbers like that um, today. And we were touching a bit on this phenomenon called shifting baseline syndrome, which is kind of where the new, I guess, reality becomes what people think are normal. So mm -hmm. people would see three platypus now and think, oh, that's like a huge number, when in reality historically it tells us you know that maybe 20 would be kind of like what the baseline was before that yeah right so shifting baseline phenomenon yes that, yeah <laughs> that's really cool so I I guess um there are people who listen to this podcast who are from overseas and they always ask um what is a platypus <laughs> so I guess we should we should sort of step back a little yeah, bit there so. and explain what 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 is a platypus? It, yeah. it is so strange. Like it's a, the weirdest creature. Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, it's a hard one to describe really. I guess their, I guess like their name is duckbill platypus. People often refer to them as a duckbill platypus because they have a bill which looks like a duck. They're mm. kind of like a cross between a duck and a beaver is probably the best way to describe it. Um, but it's interesting, the duckbill um it's not hard like the bill of a bird. It's actually quite soft and malleable. So it's interesting that it's just based on purely appearance rather than yeah. touch or anything. Um, but they do have like a lot of really interesting characteristics. You know, they are an aquatic monotreme, so they're dependent on the water, obviously. Um, when they're foraging in the rivers, they do so with their eyes and their ears closed and they're dependent on electroreception in their bill to detect their prey. So they detect any movements um, through the bill and then they kind of like sift along the bottom or under rocks to collect their macroinvertebrate food, which is pretty cool. Yeah. How does a, a electroreception work? Like, so uh, it's not is there, like is there little um, dots everywhere. Yeah, so the bill's yeah. incredibly sensitive. I think it's about 40,000 of these receptors that they have wow. like on the tip of their bill and it's not like um, like a bat where they send out and then they wait for it to bounce off something and receive it. They're just detecting like any movement that's occurring already within the river. So, yeah, it works like that. In terms of like other weird traits, that like they are incredibly soft. People are really shocked at how soft they are, except for their tail, which I always describe as feeling like one of those old brown doormats that everyone has out the front. But other than that, they are incredibly soft. Um they lay eggs, so making them a monotreme. So echidnas are the only other mammal 
um, along with platypuses that lay eggs. And the eggs are quite small too. People are really surprised. Like they would, you know, be the size of sort of your your fingernail almost when they when they're first laid. So they're not like a big a chicken Duck egg, egg or any, yeah, anything <laughs> like that. Um, and obviously they're a mammal, so they need to provide milk for their young, um, but they don't have any teats. So the females actually just excrete milk through their skin, which the little baby puggles then sap, <laughs> sap on in the, in, in the burrow. So it's so again, very like strange. <laughs> so how long, uh, how long are they pregnant for? It's not long. I think gestation is about 10 days. Um, Yeah, and then then they'll lay the eggs. And and during that time, you know, they're frantically digging the burrows and collecting the nesting material in preparation for the arrival of the eggs, yeah. And and then... And then what happens to the egg? So, I mean, I'm, I'm imagining a lot of people thinking that it's that they just lay the egg and it's in the nesting material, or is it? Yeah. So the, they have these um, like platypuses. They rest and nest in burrows on the side of riverbanks, um, but the burrows that they construct for nesting are quite complex, and they can actually be like 30 meters deep in terms of wow. from the like the edge of the river deep going like long ways in, like into long the ways, ground. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they have a series of chambers, you know, some have dead ends to try and confuse any predators that might be coming in. And then the, it, there'll be like a one chamber will be the nesting column. So they'll bring lots of um, like grasses and, and vegetation in under their tail. It's, it's quite funny to see them swimming. They like use their tail as a bit of a hand and they drag all this vegetation in and build the nest in the burrow. Uh, and then she'll lay the eggs and she'll stay with the eggs. When she goes out to feed, she'll often um, backfill the chamber with mm-hmm. like dirt. So it's called a pug. So in case the water level rises or in case any predators right. come by, they kind of um, the eggs and, and the young puggles when they do hatch will have a bit of protection from that. Yeah. So she only does that though, like backfills the burrow if she's laid her eggs. I believe so, yeah. I like that we're still there's a lot we don't know about mm. um, the breeding behavior in the wild. Um, but yeah, I believe that is the case, yeah. Mm. And you were saying eggs, does she lay more than one? Usually two. Um, oh. Yeah, two is normal, but it can be between one and three from my understanding. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. And then so, she, so the eggs stay in the nesting material. She doesn't like hold on to it in any way, shape or form. She just lays it. It's in the nesting material. Yeah. And then how long does it take for that to then hatch? Because if it's the size of your say large thumb fingernail tiny tiny yeah I think it's only a few weeks until um they hatch obviously when they hatch they're again incredibly small like like you know um like when a marsupial yep the the joeys are tiny when they first um when they're first born so it's similar to that and then they're in the nesting burrow for a a few months fully dependent on mum until they finally will come out on their own yeah right so so a few months, and obviously when they hatch, so being like a marsupial, um, are they quite underdeveloped yeah, at definitely. that stage? Yep. Yeah, 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 really tiny, um, very primitive. And I think the the platypus it actually develops teeth at at some point in that stage, which they lose. They don't um, they don't have them in their adult life, what? but that's one of those like little evolutionary things that they seem to have, yeah. So they have teeth in between the hatching, like in, in, in the egg and then the... I think during the development after hatching and, and wow. then, yeah, huh. very strange. <laughs> that is very strange. And so when they, when they ha- like I'm just trying to imagine what this little fella looks like or, or trying to explain it, but do they have their little bill? Do the, do the, or is it like, I think like a little so. pointy I, face? Again, the the footage of this in the wild is incredibly mm. rare. Um, I saw there's actually been a thing online that's gone viral recently. I don't know if you've seen it of what a image of a baby platypus, um, which is actually not at all a baby platypus. It's a clay figurine of, of what people think a platypus looks like. And it's been shared on like a huge number of websites. That's oh definitely God. not what it looks like. Like I'm envisioning just like a small pink kind of yes. jelly bean type yes. thing with the air. And then it eventually after a few months, when mm. they emerge, they are pretty much like at adult size almost. Um, so there's a quite a lot of development that happens in that stage there. Yeah, right. And then so a couple of months inside 
staying nice and warm and and when they when they get the milk they're basically sucking off yep. the underbelly area yeah on the mum's just, stomach yeah so she doesn't have fur down there she, well, does, she does she does but the or she hair. just excretes the milk through the skin and they just yeah. kind of sap on and they just yeah. suck on the, it dripping <laughs> yep. out it's just so very odd. strange so for everyone trying to understand mammals in like this is a lot of i mean i work with kids and so people are like well, mammals are co- um, uh, they're all like being painted as with the same brush, so to speak. Yeah. So we've talked about marsupials here and we've talked about monotremes, but there's also then the placental mammals. So mammals have that, you know, it's it's like the umbrella, they're um, endothermic or, or if you want to call them warm-blooded. Um, uh, and, you know, they all feed their babies milk and they all have hair. Um and this is where a lot of people get confused as well with the hair part of things as well, which is very confusing because we're all sort of taught that, no, no, they have, they have fur, but we're mammals and we yeah. don't have fur, but we have hair. Yeah. <laughs> you can call it fur if you really want to, but think of a, a dolphin, a dolphin's a mammal, um, but it doesn't have fur, yeah. but yeah. it's got that fine, you know, bit of hair there yeah. um, if you want to really get into it. And then we've got the placental mammals, which we belong to, the dolphins, the cats, the dogs, the guinea pigs, the giraffes, the elephants. And therefore, being placental mammals, the babies are developed for quite a long time inside the womb. They pretty much come out as a small replica already, you know, developed in, so to speak, I suppose. Um, and then you've got your marsupial mammals, which we've mentioned quite a few times here. And I love that that they pretty much like the monotreme mammals come out of their egg looking like a marsupial. (laughs) So marsupials are uh, animals which are underdeveloped. Now, a lot of people um, explain that marsupial mammals are mammals with pouches. However, that can be quite confusing because not all marsupial mammals have a true pouch. Um, And so that, that can be a little confused, but they're underdeveloped. They're born underdeveloped. They've got a short gestation, which they're pregnant for a short time, which I get very jealous about <laughs> as us placental mammals here. And, and then it, it, it's the rest of the development takes place outside of the womb, so to speak. Um, typically for marsupial mammals, yeah, it's in, it's in a, a, a true pouch, like a real one, or then if they don't have a true one, they create a belly fold um, of a pouch. So then the, mass, um, the monitoring mammals are the ones that lay eggs and then when they develop for, or when they hatch from the egg, they're underdeveloped as well. Now, do any of the monitoring mammals have pouches? I, platypus definitely so don't. Platypus don't. No, but I'm not sure about echidnas. Uh, you might know it, more about echidnas mm, than I do. <laughs> you know what? I, I have this, uh, I've got a bit of a, a recollection that um, echidnas do, um, <clears throat> but I'm not like 100% certain at this particular stage, so I'm not going to Yeah, no, I'd have to check as well. I think we were having this conversation and I assumed that they didn't because obviously platypuses don't and that's my specialty. But then someone said, oh, no, I think echidnas do. So I'm I'm pretty sure, and this is why it can be very confusing in regards to defining a marsupial as an animal with a pouch. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that um, echidnas do, or if it's not a true pouch, then it's a creation of of something like that during, during the breeding season. And so it's it's understanding and getting getting it sort of and things things are found out as more and more research sort of happens. But um, yeah, between the marsupials and the monotreme, they're both still underdeveloped, but one lays eggs yeah. and one one doesn't. And it's just so weird that the echidna and the platypus actually lay an egg. And so then the gestation, like they're pregnant for ten days. You said that's unbelievable. Yeah. And so the the once that once and you called them puggles by the way so I did. for for marsupials <laughs> we call them like little joeys yeah and then for the monetary mammals um uh, the little puggles and they are the cutest thing in the world by the way I, <laughs> seriously I, every time I see something like that I just <laughs> you, you you can't help but melt so. A pug- where did the name puggle come from? I don't know, to be honest, and I don't think everyone uses it. A lot of people just refer to them as the, the juvenile stage, but I think puggles is one of those things, you know, that's it's a bit cute. It's, it's the baby yes, version that's been adopted, and I, I like using puggles, but I, technically I don't know if there's, like, an actual term for it. But yeah. Yeah, I always refer to them as puggles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they stay in the pouch for a couple months. So obviously mum now, – now, while they're at the puggle stage in, sorry, not the pouch, um, the the burrow. While they're in the burrow, 
are they still just having completely milk? Yeah. So the yeah. whole time until yeah. they start to come Until they okay. come out because they can't right. feed unless they're feeding underwater, obviously. So they're just dependent on, right. on mum yeah. while they're in the burrow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Oh. So a couple of months and then then out into the big wide yes. world. So how big are they? Now, there are different sizes of um, platypus there are. depending yep. on where they're found in Australia. Yeah. So yours is, is much bigger than my North Queensland one. Is that, yes, is that correct? Definitely, yeah, because when I see your Instagram pages and I'm following all the stuff with um, research, yours is quite big. Yeah. And so ours are so little. Definitely, like there's a definite gradient. Um, in Queensland, they're, they're known to be quite small. And then as you come down south, they get larger. So particularly in Tassie, apparently they can get over three kilograms, which is enormous. The the ones that we yeah. catch, a, a difference between males and females as well. So males are obviously uh, larger than the females. Typically the females we catch are about the one kilo mark and males are about the 1.5 kilo mark, up to two if it's a, a big male. So I, don't, I can't imagine how they go down in Tassie catching those three kilogram males. I think that would be wow. pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah. So they pretty much get bigger the colder it gets really. Yes and no. It seems to be like obviously a latitudinal thing because we've done mm. a lot of work um, in high elevation and we don't see the ah. same trend there. So, okay. um, yeah, that's something we do want to look into a little bit more um, as to what's causing that. But, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it doesn't seem to be consistent with just cold environments. So, yeah, yep. To be yep. determined. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And do you know the size of the northern, the northern echidna? I don't. No, yeah. not off the top of my head. They are they are quite small because at times when I've seen them, I've gone, um, oh, they're so they're, oh, look. There's a little baby, but it's not. It's, it's the adult. Yeah. But I just yeah. forget because when I'm doing a lot of yeah. um, research and looking, they use uh, a lot of the southern size. Yeah, so, so they, they uh, not a lot of works big. done in Queensland. Um, there's a lot of eDNA work happening, but not a lot of um, the actual capturing of platypuses there. So it's like uh, quite a big knowledge gap in terms of the distribution. Uh, and general knowledge about platypuses in that area. So I, off the top of my head, I don't know how how big they are, but I know that they are definitely smaller there. Mm. Mm. And then the different sizes of the male and the female. Now, they're solitary animals, aren't they? They are. So yeah. they do not live together. Yeah, not- yes and no. Like yep. the, technically they're solitary in terms of living together. Like in a in a pool, in a river, you, you know, we capture – between one and five individuals and we spot mm-hmm. more than that um yep. what the dynamics of that is is a bit up in the air depending on the breeding season depending on i guess the resources that that habitat can provide for a certain number of individuals yep. um and i guess depending on i, I said that like the the season particularly the mm-hmm. breeding season so males are known in some cases to be quite territorial during the breeding season so perhaps you would expect that it might be one male in that area with a number of females Um, but again all that depends on the size of the river and the resources Mm. that are available to them because I know there's a beautiful place in Yungabara up here in North Queensland where it's quite well known for for platypuses You say platypuses. It's everyone platypuses. goes. Is it the big question? Is is it platypuses? <laughs> is it platypi? Is it platypus? <laughs> Definitely platypuses. So yeah. this is like our number one most asked question. I think. Um, <laughs> Just thought I'd get that out of the yeah. way. So it's a, it's a Greek origin. So technically, platypuses is correct. Yeah, right. <laughs> so when I was um, up the other day, we every time we're up that way, we've, we've got property up there as well, and every time we go up there. We just like to go to the favourite little spot and just sit there. And along that particular area where we do walk, I think we've seen, well, I, I have seen four separate adults along that, that area. And I was wondering what was their territory size. And, and, and again, I guess it depends on the river. But they don't share the burrows, do they? Um there's some instances where they might share burrows. Again, still learning about this stuff. Um, we have a student at the moment who's doing a bit of work on breeding burrows and, you know, his work is it's still progressing at the moment so I don't really have any results to share. But it does seem like individuals might be using perhaps not the same burrow but within the same burrow system. So remember I mentioned that um, often the burrows have a series of chambers so they might be using 
separate chambers within the same system, whether or not they're, I don't think that they're snuggling up together in the same spot, um, particularly the males, that would be very surprising. Um, but yeah, we yeah. still, we're still not a hundred percent sure yet. Yeah. 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 So, um, the male now, when I've, I've been following you and learning more about your current research and, and what's sort of been going on, um, and I see, I see other ones as well. Uh, there's, there's the, there's the spur of yes. the. Now, is it? This is where I learnt something new, which was really cool. But please correct me if I'm wrong. The male has the spur, but the female does have a spur, but she loses it eventually. Yeah, correct. So the males okay. have the spur for their life. The females have what's called a vestigial spur. So it's very tiny in comparison, um, like this, like smaller than a match head. Um, you probably wouldn't even notice it. And around nine months of age, they'll lose that spur. So then only the males carry it through to adulthood. Right. And is it on the back? Like which foot is it on? On both. So they have both it on back both feet. hind feet, kind of on what you would call, I guess, their ankle. Mm. Um, yep. Yeah, but only at the back and only on the males. And what's it used for? So it's like a fighting between males during the breeding season. So we see that um, it's connected to a gland, um, like a venom gland, and you see, I believe, that during the breeding season um, it becomes more venomous or they produce more of the venom. Um, so we assume that it's used in the male-male combat, um, mm. you know, fending off their territories, getting access to females, things like that. Yeah, right. So what, what's the purpose of it have it, um, being present in the female up to the nine-month mark? What I don't know, to for? be honest. I, I couldn't tell you. Wow, yet. this is yeah. the most amazing <laughs> animal which which we just we really don't know much yeah. about it. But, yeah. yeah, it's been something that's been of fascination for scientists and ecologists and stuff around the world forever and yet there's still so yeah. much the, to find the out. The mysteries, I feel like it's one of those things. <laughs> the more that we learn, the, the oh. more questions that we have you know that are and yeah. that are unanswered and it's just this continual cycle of oh well, what about this and what about this we're never gonna yeah, that's <laughs> it's a never it. ending the, well it's it's got to keep us all in, yeah. in a job really yeah <laughs> <laughs> thank you wildlife thank you nature <laughs> so with the with the venom gland it's so odd to think of a a mammal that's venomous yes I, <laughs> you know yeah. when we think of venom a venomous animal we're thinking of a snake or yeah. a spider or something like that with fangs yeah or, definitely um uh you know a scorpion yeah but, but then you've got this cute odd looking mm. beautiful monetary mammal with 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 hair that looks so fluffy and you just and then it's got ah, like yeah. those spurs at the back yeah, <laughs> so how how venomous are they has that been researched there is a, the venom? There's a bit that's been done on venom um, in terms of how venomous they are. If, it depends, obviously, on what what they're attacking. Um, I know, yes, like yeah. for humans, they're, they're not fatal to humans, but the venom, it's incredibly painful. So typically people that don't know about the spur will just pick up a platypus, you know, maybe they'll see one injured, maybe they're like trying to help it. Right. Often fishermen... Um, will accidentally catch a platypus and be unaware of this. And so often people will get spurred kind of on the hands or on the wrists. And from my understanding, the pain is so extreme that you would probably immediately pass out. Wow. Um, upon going to hospital, morphine doesn't help and there is no anti-venom. I think um, like a local anesthetic or nerve blocker needs to be used. But even then it's like you really going through the horrors um, and it can be months of oh, constant wow. pain, sensitivity to pain um, and the muscles um, in, in the area that's affected will actually like um, I guess degrade a little bit. So uh, muscle, is it atrophy? How do I say? Yes. Um, uh, I'm not very good. With yeah. Words, so, but, but essentially the muscles become incredibly weak um, to okay. the point where you might not be able to use them for several months. So it's up to like six months that you can keep experiencing this pain and these muscle problems. So wow, I highly recommend. <laughs> there was um, one record that I came across of a guy um, who served in the war and received like some very bad shrapnel wounds and then got 
spurred by a platypus and he said that the spurring from the platypus was far worse than any war injury he sustained. So we really try to avoid coming contact with the spurs. That's crazy. So obviously you have not been done. I have not, no. <laughs> Touch wood, hoping that that never happens. Oh, uh, I, I know you're going out in the next couple of days to do some of your research, <laughs> yeah. I believe, so I really hope I haven't jinxed you. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'll apologise now. <laughs> wow, so that's really interesting. And, and of it, like there's no um, harm to the female when they're, when they're mating. There doesn't like, seem he doesn't to hold be. on. There was. I did read one article a long time ago that you know. There's obviously all these theories about why, and one of them was suggesting that perhaps the male kind of uses it on the female um, to mate with her. It's like yeah, a, maybe like a sedation type or... thing, um, which again we don't have any evidence for. We assume it's for the male-male conflict, but it was an interesting theory that came up. We do. Um, we have had. One incident that I remember we caught, um, so we have a few different um, types of netting that we use. We have like a, a typical fike net, which is used quite a lot in, in fishing. And we did catch um, two individuals at the same time, which is quite rare, but it was a male and a female. And we noticed that the female, like she was completely fine. She just seemed a bit docile almost. Docile, we weren't yeah. sure if maybe whilst they were in the net together, she might have got spurred accidentally or on purpose. I can't. I can't say. And whether it happened or not, you know, she didn't have any wounds, so we couldn't be sure. But that was the only thing that I've ever come across that kind of made me think, oh, maybe there's, you know, something else going on there. But yeah. the, the accepted theory is that it is for male male conflict. So yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And um, and look, I, I've I've got to ask this odd question about how they breed, because when you look at the echidna. Who has the male has the most strangest weirdest yes. penis? <laughs> if anyone has not seen an echidna penis, then please be careful when you Google that. <laughs> but check it out because it is odd. So, how, like, what's the reproductive system like for the female and then the male? So, um, the platypus has a cloaca, so just one hole for feces, urine, and reproduction. Um, the male's penis is with like inside the cloaca and I believe it, it obviously comes out upon stimulation um, into the female's cloaca but I've never seen one obviously mm. it's tucked away and I'm you know we're not there to yeah yeah <laughs> try and arouse that me, situation. Me but, but they are very strange um, I know that they're quite similar to the echidna I believe the echidna has four heads maybe uh, I think yeah. the platypus only has two so still okay. slightly weird, still weird in that regard, but I haven't seen one in person, so I can't make too much comment on it. And people are probably like, what do you mean uh, forehead? Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, the echidna is the forehead, yeah. and when you have seen it, it's, it's really, which matches perfect then for the reproductive um, entry and, and system of, of the of the female. So then, so with that, with the platypus, so the female has so once it's in I the actually, cloaca, I, then I couldn't comment on that to yeah. be honest. I don't reproduction is not our specialty, but yep, I'm assuming yep. that the, if it has two heads for as you said with the echidna four and four, so I'm assuming that it must align with the female's too, reproductive yeah. track. So yeah, I guess that's so, so interesting. I love it. <laughs> wow, you know. Just another I'm a, weird morphological I'm a bit weird, trait. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, this this beautiful looking animal is still so um, – we, we really don't know much about it. And I'm reading this beautiful novel at the moment and I actually forget the name of the novel. It's Platypus something, Platypus Love or something, and it's actually okay. – um, it's, it's a novel based on back in, in the days where – England didn't or the UK didn't actually believe England and America believe that um, we had an animal that looked like that and so the novel bit of a love story in there but it's this scientist who comes over to Australia um, and tries to research and, and find out more about the platypus so um, yeah obviously people in other countries didn't believe that this animal existed and wasn't isn't it true that they thought it was a trick yeah I think they sent one back and everyone thought it was a hoax and they were actually like um looking at it under a magnifying glass trying to find the stitching of where they'd like sewn on the bill and yeah so crazy well, <laughs> I, well it's 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 true you wouldn't believe yeah. that it was yeah 
Yeah, but very fascinating. So how long can um, platypus hold their breath for? Not very long. It's, I think, around a minute and a half to two minutes. Okay. Um, if they're feeling threatened, they can kind of go between some reeds or vegetation, mm. um, get down low and really lower their heart rate and respiratory rate, which I oh. think allows them to kind of stay under for a little bit longer. But it, typically when they're feeding, they'll go down, you know, collect some invertebrates. Every 30 seconds to a minute they'll pop up and mm. on the surface munch away what they've collected and then they'll go back down again. So, yeah, it's, it's not long. Down. A very quick announcement to make that I'm so excited. Our home education virtual portal is up and running and you can visit that at www.australianwildlifeeducation.com and if you are a parent or you know other parents who have children ages 4 to 12, this one is specifically for them and they get to learn more about Australian wildlife. That's that's really cool. I didn't realise that they can do the lower the heart rate. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was something uh, I actually even yeah. only found out just recently. Um, we were on a trip and just talking. We'd always assumed it was around the two-minute mark, but then we did read something recently and it said, you know, if they are in a threatened situation, they do have the ability to kind of um, mm. have that, I guess, as like a bit of a protective type thing that they do just to lay low until the threat's passed. Yeah. 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 Awesome. So tell us a little bit about the research that you're doing currently at the moment. Um, and, and you do, you are using sort of, you mentioned nets, you call them, is it mesh nets? Yeah, yeah. we have mesh nets and fike nets that we're using. Okay. And what is that? And what are you trying to find out currently at the moment? Yeah. So I guess at the moment, um, we've got like a f- few different projects on the go. A lot of the work that we've been doing recently has been sort of associated with um, post-bushfire surveys. So we've been trying to see if there's like an impact um, of obviously the big fires that occurred in 2019 and 2020. Um, so a few areas we focused on the mid-coast area, um, which we did surveys in last year and this year. Um, of course, this year there was the added complexity of having the big floods come through oh. right before we went. So I think it was about a week before we went up there, there was actually like a house floating down the river oh, near one wow. of our sites. So it was, it's kind of becoming a bit of a long-term story there where we're hoping to go back because obviously um, now that they've had the fire, well, they had the drought and then the fire and now the floods. So it's kind of hard to pull apart what actually might be driving some of the changes, you know, whether it was specifically the, the, the drought and then the fire and now the floods on top of that or whether it's mm-hmm. one of those in particular that's impacting, we don't know. So that's that's kind of a, a long-term project that we're hoping we'll get the funding to revisit and see how the population there might recover. Mm-hmm. And then more recently, um, just this year, we were in Kangaroo Island down in South Australia. So we were lucky enough uh, to head down there and do some post-fire monitoring of that population there as well. Yeah. I've always wanted to go to Kangaroo Island. It's a lovely spot, lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so with the with the nets, what do you? So you put the nets out in the evenings. Yeah, is that what you're so platypus are obviously nocturnal. So all our work is throughout the night, often in, often into the morning. So we don't get much sleep. Um, but we have two kinds of nets that we'll use depending on sort of the the width and the depth of the river. So if it's like a really long, deep water hole, which is, you know, where they prefer um, to forage for their food, we'll use the mesh nets. So the mesh nets are typically we'll use a 50 metre long stretch and the net itself is around one and a half, two metres deep. And so the, the net has like um, floaters every metre and essentially right. it floats along the top and then the actual netting will just fall into the water under its own weight. So we don't weigh the net down at all, obviously, because platypuses need to surface for air. Yes, yeah. And we'll also run these nets um, like um, along, sorry, in line with the riverbank rather than across the river because if we put it across the river, we're going to be catching all the fish and mm. all the debris that's coming down so we don't want to do that um, and the platypuses tend to forage side to side as well so it's actually it's actually more efficient for catching them as well yeah um, so with those nets we'll set them typically around dusk and we'll leave them until midnight 1 a.m um, and we're kind of constantly sitting by the riverbank there 
waiting to hear any splashes, checking with the spotlight to see if any of those floaters are moving or if anything's come to the surface. And then we'll actually um, get in the tinny about once an hour and we'll manually lift the net as well to make sure that, you know, any fish or any sticks haven't got caught that might um, impact the platypus's ability to come up for air. And then the other type we use is a fike net, which is used a lot in um, fish research and turtle research. Um, we use a double wing fike. So typically we'll set these where it's shallower in like the smaller creeks. So typically about waist depth and, you know, only a couple of meters wide where it wouldn't be appropriate to set the big, the bigger mesh net. Um, and so we'll set these in the afternoon. We normally set them in pairs. So one facing upstream and one facing downstream, and we'll have three or four pairs. So we're hoping that we'll catch any platypuses that are moving in in either direction for that section of the stream. Um, and we, yeah, set them in the afternoon. We do have to check them every three hours mm. throughout the night just because, um, the platypus, you know, we don't want to leave it there distressed for too long. It's a, it's a safe, it's a much safer netting method in terms of the fact that one end can be tied up. And so the platypus can be in the water or it can be resting out of the water, whichever it prefers. But obviously, um, we don't want to leave them there for too long. So we, we do check it regularly throughout the evening. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I, th- I always I always wondered how it worked with the netting because you would think that they would get caught and not be able to come up, but yeah. obviously being scientists and, and ecologists, <laughs> you guys do care and love for nature, yeah. so it's yeah. like you're not going to harm them. Um, so, yeah, those different nets have that a different sort of ability yeah, for them to still. Yeah, they're both very different experiences. Um, you know, the, the, the mesh net, obviously, there's the, the added element of you've got to be really like on it and make sure that, mm. you know, nothing's caught. Um, and, you know, you kind of finish up a little bit earlier, whereas the fikes, it's a bit more relaxed in terms of the platypus is just chilling, doing whatever it wants. But you do have to be up all night checking and mm. making sure. So, yeah, different, very different experiences for yeah. both. Yeah, so once you've caught them, then what happens? What, yeah. what's, what's the aim there? So it depends on what's kind of happening with the study, our typical protocol, um, as soon as they come out of the net, they go into a pillowcase. Um, if it's cold, wrap them in a little towel and we'll just kind of put them in the car. And because they're in like a, uh, like a dark, warm place, they'll typically just go to sleep, to be honest. Um, really relaxed. Uh, we only have a few that are, you know, trying to wiggle around in the car a little bit, but most of them, yeah, they, they're really relaxed once they're in the dark. Um, and then kind of to reduce stress to the animal, because we do, it's, it's quite difficult to catch a platypus, like a lot of effort and resources go into it. So when we catch them, we really want to maximize the number of samples that we're taking. Um, and to again, reduce stress to the animal, we do anesthetize all the individuals that we catch. Um, and we do this through what's called isofluorine gas. So it's the gas that they use all, at on like all at all the zoos, the ones you see on the TV. Put a little face mask on, yeah. set up. Um, so we have like a portable machine that we take out in the field, and we put their little mask on, and you know within a few minutes they're they're sleeping. And while they're sleeping, we're monitoring their heart rate, their temperature, their blood oxygen levels, just to make sure that it's all within normal. Um, while they're under and then we'll start taking the samples so you know we take things like urine and feces to look at stress hormones um we take the fur so we can look at the platypus's diet through stable isotope analysis what yeah (laughs) hang on a minute (laughs) you got to explain that one (laughs) yeah so essentially everything that you eat has like a carbon nitrogen signature in it Um, and this kind of gets stored in your hair. So for example, if you were to look at sections of our hair, you could kind of figure out what you were eating at that period in time. So if you've changed your diet, like the bottom of the hair would have a much different signature to the new hair growth at the top. Um, yeah, so you can track a lot of things, um, that you've ingested that way. And it's the same for the platypus. If we take a little fur sample. Um, obviously there's a a big process of grinding it and preparing all the samples, but essentially when you run it through like a mass spectrometer, you get this output that's a a carbon nitrogen ratio. And then you can then take the ratios from the bugs that they're eating and match them up. So then, you know, know, if it's this ratio or they're eating this, this much of this individual. So it's a pretty cool, pretty cool thing. Um, That is very cool. I have no idea. They do it a lot with things like, uh, I know seals, like they take the whiskers 
for seal. Uh-huh. So you can kind of chop it up and it's like looking back in time at what the individual was eating, depending on, you know, the length of the whisker and stuff. So it's very, yeah, very informative and very cool, depending on what animal you're doing it for. I actually love the aspect behind the decision of looking at fur or hair or whiskers and going, yeah, I reckon if you just grab that, you chop that up, then this is going to happen and then this is how we're going to find out. Like where does that even, like how did this become the question or the the statement or the hypothesis or whatever you want to call it and it's just like, it's like, "Mm, yes, I think if we do that, we're going to find out if this happens. What? God, I love science. Very cool. so damn good. (laughs) All right, sorry, I did interrupt you. No, no, no. So, yeah, fur for stable isotope analysis, which is very cool. Uh, Then we collect ticks. um, We collect a biopsy to look at the genetics of the individual. So especially for that um, DAMS project that we're doing, we actually had another PhD student that was trying to see if the genetic um, composition of the populations was different upstream and downstream of the DAMS. Like that's acting as a barrier essentially if they could breed or not. Um, and then we insert a microchip into all the individuals that we oh. catch so we know if we've recaught the same individual, um, which is really important if we're trying to estimate population size because mm. obviously mark recaptures, you know, you need to know if you're recapturing the same individuals. Um, then we take a series of measurements. Depends if we're doing a movement study. We often use these what we call acoustic tags. Sometimes we'll just glue them onto the tail of the platypus. Um, but if we want to do like a long-term tracking, we actually do like a surgical procedure and we implant them into the abdomen of the platypus. Mm-hmm. And so when it goes back into the water, um, this acoustic transmitter, you can set up like an array of acoustic receivers. So when the platypus swims past, it's kind of pinging off wherever you've yeah, got right. these stations. So that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then after we're finished, um, the platypus will wake up within a few minutes, um, perfectly fine. We'll put it back in the pillowcase, give it about half an hour just to, you know, fully wake up and then off it goes back into the water again. So, wow. Yeah. yeah, that's so cool. And so many different so many um, different projects all happening and yeah. people finding out so much. And then um, so within your actual um, initiative in regards to the platypus conservation initiative, do you have lot, uh, how many people are involved in in finding out information? Because then you have other conservation pr- um, people and other scientists elsewhere. Do you all have somewhere collaborative that you put all information? Or? Kind of. It's a bit. It's a bit strange. Um, so, in terms of platypus conservation initiative, it's literally at the moment Gillard, Richard, and myself. So we're quite a small team. We do have. We've had past students. Obviously, we have students at the moment. Um, but we're very big on collaborating. So we do a lot with Taronga Zoo um, is one of our biggest collaborators. So, you know, if they need samples or we need samples analysed, we collaborate a lot with them, particularly um, the people that are looking at the health and the diet and the genetics. Um, We work a lot with them. Uh, We collaborated with Sydney University previously on the DAMS project. Um, We do a lot of work with WWF and Australian Conservation Foundation uh, and zoos victoria too so we're kind of all over the place yeah uh, a little bit. i love you know, that we have a lot of yeah and even um it's now cool. we're, we're working obviously the kangaroo and stuff we're working with flinders university down there so it's ever expanding and i think yeah. um platypus is really coming onto the scene quite recently mm-hmm. in terms of research so it's good that you know we're branching out and getting everyone else kind of involved in this in this bigger collaboration i guess yeah yeah and especially understanding from what you did your phd in is with the you know the impacts of dams yeah. you know it's a big it's a big thing that that sort of comes up for many different species yeah, and so yeah for sure yeah, and the- i think um it's it's kind of oh, happy and sad i guess that um like obviously we know these impacts of dams and we've known them for a long time, but the platypus has the potential to kind of act as like a flagship species mm-hmm. to kind of really get people aware of what's happening. Like people, right. I guess, if you tell them, oh, dams are doing this, but if you say, oh, dams are doing this to platypuses, platypus. it becomes a bit more mm-hmm. emotive. Um, mm-hmm. I think we're, we're hopeful that we can bring about change in, in that way, using it as like a flagship to improve the situation for all the other species that are impacted by dams as well so yeah definitely and I think creating that feeling in people a platypus is a great way and you know a lot of people yeah 
um, just assuming here, but they might go, oh, okay, yeah, cool, that's a fish, but not quite understanding yeah. the impact that that would have, but then yeah. put it onto a cute, cuddly kind of feeling. Yeah, that's you what know, it definitely has that yeah. charismatic yeah. megafauna type thing going yeah. for it, which is like, as I said, happy and sad because um, it's good that we can get that awareness, but mm. I mean the other species that are impacting are impacted yes. by the dams are just as important. So, yeah, it's, it goes oh, a bit both ways. The platypuses have some big responsibility yeah. to, help, to help the bigger picture. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the solution with that anyway? Because wh- what I sort of see a lot with some of these things like let's just say dams or mining or something like that, like uh, how do we how do we deal with mm. the those things that are probably never really going to be stopped because yeah. there might be money involved or there's bigger decisions or at the moment here in North Queensland it's it's the wind farms, great we've got sustainable um, uh, energy being created but yet let's just destroy half of the rainforest yeah. to put it up. Yeah, so yeah, it's a tough it's, one. It's like in an ideal world, no more dams and no more coal yes. mining, but that's obviously not realistic. And I guess um, with the information that we're finding out. We're kind of trying to guide water managers and dam operators into what the best practices might be right. to reduce some of the impacts, you know, rather than saying, oh, get rid of the dam, which yeah. is not going to happen. Gonna and happen. there's also a whole series of problems on its own if you're decommissioning a dam now that you've changed, the, you completely changed the downstream environment. So, again, that is not realistic either. So, I guess our focus is kind of on what what the impacts are. And as I said, you know, if you're really changing the flow regime in terms of the timing and the temperature, we know that that's impacting platypus. So our mm-hmm. advice would be to try and mimic the natural flow regime as closely as possible, try and mitigate some of you know those problems that you're having with the temperature. And also one of the things that we're, um, we have looked at and then we are continuing to look at um, with our student Joey at the moment is kind of like the timing of some big releases and how that might impact the breeding, particularly if there's young puggles in the burrow. Because they they use a lot of environmental water, obviously, um, to try and restore these rivers. But I guess an important aspect is that those environmental releases are occurring at a time of year that it's not going to, you know, detrimentally impact the species downstream that you're trying to help. Mm. So I guess our, our stance is just Absolutely. to try and inform ways that, you know, the water can be better managed for platypuses. Yeah, definitely. And you were saying um, earlier on that they they are nocturnal species. Um, here in North Queensland, the the majority of the time I've seen them is during the day. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. especially around the lunchtime area. Yeah. So uh, I time. guess we yeah. say they are nocturnal. Um, mm. they're they're primarily active at night. So um, yeah. the when I was saying to you, we did the acoustic tracking. I was also you know that data kind of enables you to look at when in the day most of the activity is occurring. And so, again, primarily nocturnal, but you do see a shift. So particularly over Mm. the winter months um, and in the breeding season, they're they're coming out in the day a lot more, whether that's, you know, to find mates or to to establish territory. But they definitely, um, yeah, there is a bit of a, a fluctuation with the seasons and I guess saying they're primarily nocturnal doesn't mean they're exclusively nocturnal. So they, no, but they I obviously if, are out in the day. And yeah. yeah, I wonder if it's also geographically. Yeah, um, it could be. Um, yeah. Again, like I said, Queensland is a big knowledge gap. So maybe up yeah. there, you know, there's something different. Because we happening. went to Young. Do you know where Youngula is? I have heard of. Yeah, that. it's oh, it's absolutely amazing. So around the Mackay area, we, w- we went and stayed in Yungula. However, we could we only actually spotted the platypus early morning or really like after 3 o'clock in yeah. the afternoon, never anything during the day, whereas in North Queensland we see them quite active yeah, even okay. in the middle of the day. But, yeah. again, like what you said, um, I think it is dependent on up here for us as well is the, the, the time of day. Yeah. Um, do they uh, – We I have sort of – seen them come up and kind of sit in the sun a little bit while floating in yeah, the water okay. and have a little bit of a sunbake yeah, and, cool. and then quickly go back down but whether or not they're actually doing that yeah. I'm just putting a shoe of thought <laughs> onto that one but um but yeah it's it's really interesting to see different behaviors um yeah. and what when they come out at different times yeah, of year, but different geographical areas definitely too. and it could it's, it could just be like i noticed in our study you know just individual variation like the males okay. weren't all doing one thing the females weren't all doing one okay. thing you know some males were just coming out whenever and some were coming out exclusively at yeah. night so it could be a bit on you know 
personality mm. type type thing, which they definitely have. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Oh, and the breeding season, when is that? And is it the same for all of them it's, in the whole? It, it begins earlier up, up near you guys. Okay. Um, so typically in our area it kicks off around August um, wow. and they'll be breeding August, September, so in, in the early spring. Okay. I, but, yeah, as, as I said, it, it starts a bit earlier up your way and then um, a bit later down south, so there is a gradient there as well. Yeah. And with the temperature of the water, I was sort of thinking about this in regards to their their core body temperature and then also the yeah. temperatures of the waters because when we're in Yungula, that water is freezing cold and then you come up here, even Yungabara gets really cold during the winter but then it's quite nice yeah. in the water during the summer. So what what can they handle? They're really tolerant. They're tolerant more to the cold water, to be honest. So okay. like we've done work in Threadbow and I know Tom Grant wow. who's – been studying platypus for over 40 years talks of accounts of having to like use an ice pick <laughs> to radio track the platypuses wow, really? that were so they 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 can exist in temperatures of zero degrees that's for sure um wow. it's more the warmer waters that they don't like uh, they're so insulated so i think around like the the 30 degree mark they really like they get heat stressed quite easily so we think that that's why their distribution kind of tapers um, off up north because after yes. that and obviously crocodiles might um yeah. be impacting that as well but yeah they're definitely much more um cold resistant than they are to the heat yeah so what's their core body temperature because you were saying that yeah, you take a temperature for their body yeah so we're constantly monitoring it, it fluctuate it can fluctuate a bit so obviously in in a human you know if you're point whatever of a degree out it yep. can really impact you but platypus is you know generally between 28 and 32 anywhere right. in that range is what we would consider normal um yeah so for four degree range is is quite significant compared to us and like you said they're quite insulated so are they quite fatty or is it just the fur, fur like the hair? yeah it's yeah. got like this double layer of fur which keeps oh. them almost dry while they're swimming <laughs> um which is yeah really cool and I guess that's why they're so soft as well so oh I've never touched one before <laughs> um I love how you guys collaborate with so many different um uh other conservation projects or zoos and everything so I'm guessing that the captive population is actually really important to all of your research and studies as well um Things can vary, obviously, in captivity. However, it is a good way to sort of be able to even gather certain information yeah. um, and and beha- watch behaviours or um, the physiological sort of side of things, yeah. research more. Yeah. Um, so with their feet, I'm very fascinated with their feet. <laughs> <laughs> can you explain the feet for me? Yeah, so it's, it's kind weird. of like um, I, I guess if you imagine a human hand and then webbed together, um, mm. the front feet in particular, and so except with like long nails that yeah. kind of come out so they can fold their, I guess, their swimming flap bit back and have the nails protruding, which is how they obviously dig because they have to be quite good diggers to dig right. these amazing burrows. Um, but yeah, when they're swimming, they'll just have you know the hand out and be propelling along, typically just with their really front long. legs. Yeah, yeah. They, they're quite big, you know, and they they, they need to be. That's <laughs> how they get around in in the water and on land. So yeah, the feet are yeah really interesting to look at. I I think, and the nails too are not what you expect. Then they're quite rounded and blunt. Um, they're not like a, a sharp nail, which I, again, I, it's just fascinating to look I guess at. If to you're constantly honest. digging down the it bottom wear, with the box yeah. and everything, it, <laughs> yeah. would, it would wear out. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Such a strange, magnificent animal, <laughs> seriously. And with um, with within captivity too, over the times that I've been in the industry, there has been a, quite a struggle being able to keep them successfully in captivity. Yeah. Is that due to the the nature of them needing the burrow and the temperature of the water, or is this just because it's it's more it can be quite stressful? Yeah, for them? What, we're what not sure think? what the reason is, and like um, the breeding success is incredibly low at zoos, um, and we don't yeah we don't know why that's occurring. A lot of our research into the future um, is going to be working a lot with Taronga and Healville to yeah. try and you know tease out some of these whys and how we improve the situation. Mm. And I guess a lot of that is going to be feedback from what we, we see in our studies in the wild. You know, we're trying to mimic as closely as possible 
what we see there to you know better improve the captive population. But at the moment, yeah, we're just not sure why they don't they don't like it there. To be honest, so well, you know, why would you? <laughs> yeah, no, well, yeah, that, you know, it's very true. But for for yeah. um, for education purposes, yeah. totally. Uh, you know, zoos are very, very, very important. Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely not dismissing that because I, I actually believe that zoos are very important for, um, well, for, for study and research, yeah. but also for humans, for us to go in and fall in love and to learn and see different, like, you know, zoos these days are so different to what they yeah. were like when I was even growing definitely. up. Um, and they're changing, you know, all the time. And it's amazing with yeah. the research that you guys come up with and then you're able to then work with zoos yeah. and for the best practice of, of captive species yeah. as well. So yeah. that's that's really important. So definitely not dismissing zoos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you what, I, I, I probably have a billion more questions and, and I bet you a lot of other people do as well. Um, is there somewhere I can send people, whether it's even an email for you or is there a website that people can go to? Um, yeah, or yeah, definitely Instagram. Yeah, so we're obviously on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, people are welcome to contact us via email as well. Yeah. Um, and we're also um, we're going to be launching a new website soon as well. It's called cplatypus.org, awesome. um, just the letter C. Um, and that's going to be like an interactive website where, you know, you can see where other observations of platypuses are. You can see, you know, grids or observations or local government areas um and so you can kind of upload your sightings to there and mm. it's you you'll see how it's improving our understanding of the distribution and abundance and it'll also be listing upcoming events uh so you can see if you want to come to any of our community days or presentations as well so we're cool. trying at the moment just to centralize all our stuff there so hopefully in the not Perfect. too distant future that'll be a good resource yeah i'll put all the information in the podcast podcast notes so everyone can find that but also any emails that you're quite happy for people to send uh questions to and i i did just want to address again the atlas of living australia in the me- like you you just mentioned that you'll have something on your website yeah. in regards to that. Is this is this a little bit similar where people yeah. can go to Atlas of Living Australia yeah. and put So Atlas of Living Australia is what's actually going to be feeding the information into oh, our cool. website. We're just trying to um, make it a little bit easier for it to be platypus specific. Um, but Atlas of Living Australia is an incredible resource. It's very easy to upload your findings and not just for platypus, for any species. And yeah. the information that we get from that is really really useful especially for platypus where we can't get this long-term monitoring and we're really relying on like the citizen science component to to understand a few more of these things yeah yeah definitely and and over the time interviewing so many amazing people it's the same thing that you're saying is that we really do rely on the citizens to help out (laughs) with with that because you guys can't be everywhere yeah (laughs) um so citizen science um initiatives are really really good so i'll also put that link in the podcast podcast notes as well so thank you so much for um coming on and having a chat thank you and i hope that we can catch up again maybe soon with any of any new research that you're finding but i certainly learned today that there really is so much to learn about our platypuses and again platypuses platypus platypi (laughs) platypuses and i did just look up do echidnas have um pouches now it says that it has a pouch however i also found that it has not a true pouch but it depends on the subspecies so i have to double check all that information as well i did remember and i have actually said it before that um we can't necessarily define a marsupial mammal as a as a as a mammal with a pouch so marsupial mammals are your kangaroos and koalas because i do believe i did believe that one of the monitoring mammals uses a pouch whether it's a false or a true pouch um but um yeah it's definitely not the platypuses i just looked it up but now yeah i'm curious to know a little bit more so i'm actually going to go do some more research on the kid and i don't work with the kidneys and i don't usually talk too much about yeah. um monitoring mammals as such so yeah that sort of sparked my curiosity as well from our chat so i'm going to go and investigate <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for coming along and i look forward to um yeah reading some of your work and following you on instagram and um, seeing what else you guys come up with over over the years. So yeah, amazing thanks. work. Be good to keep you updated. Absolutely. All right. We'll talk to you soon. See ya. 
Wow, another awesome wild chat, which I hope you really enjoyed because I can tell you now, I absolutely did. I would really love to connect with you all as well. So please don't forget to find us on Facebook and Instagram, which you can get the links in our podcast show notes. I have them right there for you. And if you enjoyed this episode, please help us by spreading the word. You can also take a screenshot of the episode you just listened to, share it on your socials and tag us in it, of course. We would also love a review. If you have time, please jump on your podcast channel you just listened to us on and give us a review. Give us some feedback and don't forget to click that big subscribe button, which of course helps us spread the word even further and for you to also be notified for any upcoming episodes. If you are somebody or know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who would love to be on our Australian Wildlife Education Wild Chats, please send them my way or get in contact with me. Also in the show notes, you can find all those details on how to get in contact. I love chatting and also learning from others who can showcase their knowledge, their expertise, but also their passion and any projects that they might have going on. So please reach out to me as I would love to get you on our podcast. But otherwise, I hope you're all amazing. I hope you're all having a great day. And I will, you'll be hearing from me in the next wild chat. See you next week. Bye.